Katie here. Today is a very special episode where Tiffany and I take to the streets and walk in the footsteps, in the historical footsteps, of our favorite painter, Caravaggio. If you regularly visit thebittersweetlife.net, you may have noticed that all the paintings have a similar vibe. They are all Caravaggios. So today we take to the streets and visit the places where Caravaggio actually lived. It's a fun way to explore history, but it does take a little while. Therefore, the episode has been split in two. We decided to release them together because next week is Christmas and we'll be taking the week off. So enjoy two episodes today and we'll see you in the new year. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we meet you on the streets of Rome. But today we're in search of our favorite painter, Caravaggio. And for those of you who are frequent visitors to our website, thebittersweetlife.net, you know that Caravaggio is a bit of a theme by now that every single episode we put up is represented by a particular Caravaggio picture. And since we're both crazy about this man uh, in our own ways, we decided that why not do an episode about him specifically, since we are in his hometown. Yes. Well, not hometown, but... It's not his hometown, but it's where he spent his most productive years. So where are we right now? We, have, we're, we are starting at the beginning. Well, we're not going to start at the very, very beginning because I, I don't know exactly where he lived when he first moved to Rome. But uh, we're at a street that was part of his early career, early Roman career. So Caravaggio, if you're not that familiar with him, well, he was from North northern Italy near Milan in a town called Caravaggio what are the odds (laughs) (laughs) no he was called his name was Michelangelo Merisi he was later known by the name of his hometown and he moved to Rome again you know how I am with dates I'm not a big date person I can usually remember within a few years so I know it was around 1590 yes He, he was born in 1571 so he came here as you know 19 20 year old and he got work uh, with um, a painter named Cavalier d'Arpino, who, well, I think his, his, his real name was Giuseppe Cerisi, I think. Something like that. Cerasi Cerisi. <laughs> but uh, he, he was later knighted, and, and he was known, he is known now by the name of Cavalier d'Arpino. So we're, we're on a street in Rome called Via di Torretta, which means Street of the Little Tower. There's probably a tower around here somewhere that it was the street was named after. And it's um, to give you a kind of visual, so you can imagine what it's like, it's a very narrow street. Really only one car can fit down the street. There's no sidewalk on it. It's cobblestone street. So it's very shady, which is nice because it's, it's quite hot right now. And the street also kind of curves a little bit. It's not straight and it's very short. It's maybe one maximum, two blocks long. And the buildings are about four or five stories high. Mm-hmm. I exactly, would say. five or six, yeah. The typical colors of a Roman building, pale pink, pale yellow, orange, or white. And we're sitting on the stoop of a building. And we don't know exactly where Cavalier d'Arpino's studio was on this street. There is an art gallery on the corner, which obviously has nothing to do with this painter. But it, it could have been there. Who knows? Maybe. But this is where he had his studio, and, and Caravaggio worked for him. And Caravaggio had to do boring tasks like copying paintings and things like that and and he didn't get you know much credit for that early work 
So copying paintings was something that was pretty typically done at that time, right? Yeah, if, if, if there was a popular painting and, you know, the original was not available, you could make a copy of it. Artists sometimes even made copies of their own work. Right. You can't get a print, so you might as well just try <laughs> to repaint it, right? Exactly. What was that time like, as far as you know, for Caravaggio, this, these early years? Well, you probably know as much as I do, honestly, by now. Um, it's possible. <laughs> you, uh, we will, a lot of the inf- information that I have on Caravaggio comes from a really great book by Peter Robb. And the book is called, depending on the, um, the edition you get, because the name did change at some point, but it's either called M, The Man Who Was Caravaggio, or The Caravaggio Enigma. So I believe it's the same exact book with just two different names. But it's a great book if you're interested in Caravaggio's life. Peter Robb, R-O-B-B. So I read this book a few years back. Katie read it this year. So you actually might have a better memory of some (laughs) of the specifics than I do. Well, I know that it wasn't a very happy time for him and that he was very poor. And maybe this is a little later after he gets here, but er one of his early paintings, The Sick sick Self-Portrait, was done of him while he was ill, poor, looking a little too skinny and needing somebody to paint. And so he painted himself looking in a mirror, dressed up as Bacchus, <laughs> looking greenish. Uh, but I, I believe from reading the book that it was not a happy time for him. And it was also um, frustrating in the sense that he felt that he was older than he should be compared to other artists, that he should have had more success by this time. And so he started lying about his age. And so he actually told people he was a lot younger than he was. I guess he could pass for younger. (laughs) But he told people he was younger just so that they would feel like he was very accomplished for how young an artist he was. Oh, yes. I do remember that now that you say that. One thing that I found very interesting, uh, especially reading a second book that I also wanted to recommend about his life, but it's not nonfiction. The, the, other, the first book I mentioned is nonfiction. It's very heavy. It's very impeñativo. I don't know how to say that in English, but it's very, you know, like you have to concentrate when you read this book. And it's a good idea to have an art book of Caravaggio's prints, images of his, his paintings with you so that you can refer to it. But there's another book that's really great. It's called A Name in Blood by a man named Matt Reese, R-E-E-S. And it is a historical novel about his life. It's very well researched you can pretty much guarantee that the stuff that he talks about is historically accurate. What he does is he really is only talking about the end of Caravaggio's life and his last years in Rome and then his years on the run in Naples, in Sicily, in Malta, and then his final flight back to Rome, which he never arrives from and he dies. And that's where he becomes creative and he invents, because the the death of Caravaggio, we'll get to it, but the death of Caravaggio is still a mystery today. And so Matt Matt Reese creates his possible, what could possibly have happened, and it's really great. But what what interested me about this book was he really describes the area around the Spanish Steps, which is not where we are right now. We're a good 10 minutes walk from there. But the area around the Spanish Steps was, at the time of Caravaggio's life, a very dangerous, very poor neighborhood. It was, the, it was the red light district. It was where all the prostitutes and the pimps lived. And you could not go walking around there unless you were heavily armed. It was just too unsafe at night. And so that, I think, is so interesting because today the Piazza di Spagna area is the most expensive and elite area in the whole city. Yes, that's where you'll find your Prada and your mm-hmm. Chanel and Hermes and exactly. all, these, all these big brand things to shop for. So if you have money... 
go to the Spanish Steps, but don't go there if uh, you know you're in the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> don't go, don't go up there if you've gone back in time to 1592. Yes, please. Um, but um, but yeah. So should we continue on and make our next stop? Yes. Where are we heading next? What's your We're plan? We're gonna head to the street where Caravaggio rented an apartment. Okay. Let's go check it out. So we've just walked down not even two blocks and around a corner and we're standing in front of a very small church uh, which is the church of divine love and it uh it's closed right now so we're not we're not going to go inside but um this is a church where for a few years at least caravaggio would have this would have been his neighborhood parish now in in italy still even today every home every apartment or, or house or whatever falls under a parish this would be your official parish where you would go, kind of like um, your, your school zone, if you can imagine, um, your public school zone. And so you would have a, a, an official parish, and you had to go there. You had to report every, once a week. You had to go to church. This is the Counter-Reformation, by the way. This is the late 1500s in a, in, a, in a period in which the Catholic Church, especially in Rome, was incredibly oppressive. And if you didn't go to church once you could be beaten if you didn't go to church twice you could be thrown in prison and if you didn't show up three times you could be executed for this so it was a big deal you you know this was not something to be taken lightly so this little church which is quite small it's very narrow right now it's painted pale peach who knows what it looked like when 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 Caravaggio was around and it has a really lovely Romanesque bell tower campanile right next to it which is probably from the Middle Ages, from the early middle, or the, the late Middle Ages. So this is probably, we can imagine, where he would have come to church every week, since he would have had no choice. Hmm, I would like to go in that church, but unfortunately. We'll have to look it up online, see if it's, uh, see if it's open. Maybe I'll take a picture, you know, just for the, just for posterity. Eh, it's not going to fit in the picture, the whole thing, because it's a narrow street, but I got, a, I got a small picture of it. Good enough. All right, on to the apartment. So this is the Street of Divine Love, Divino Amore, the Street of Divine Love. It, it wasn't called that in, Mark, Michelangelo, in uh, Caravaggio's lifetime. It was, it was called the Via di San Biagio, but it's now called the Vicolo di Divino Amore. And his, it's very, very narrow where his apartment was. It's almost narrow enough that you could just almost touch both sides of the street. Not quite. But I don't think a car could fit down that street. Oh, definitely not. I think they even have it blocked off by a planter here as we approach. And just wide enough to maybe let a scooter through, but maybe not. Maybe not. Now, let's see if I can remember. But I'm pretty sure that this is the building. And it would have been the second floor. Okay, so let's... Number 19. Now, I believe it's number 19. I, I'm 99% sure that this is, this is the doorway. Um, so number 19 via... Di Divino Amore. Now he would have lived on the second floor. He would actually had two levels, so maybe there's a level above that we can't see from this position. He would have been on the first floor up and then the next floor, which seems like quite luxurious to us, you know, a two-floor apartment building with maybe three or four rooms. But, but back then that was, that was actually not luxurious, and the place was, was quite cheap. This wasn't the best of all neighborhoods and it was not a very well-kept apartment. And this wasn't the only place he lived in Rome. In fact, when he first moved here, he generally lived with patrons. He, was, um, he had a, uh, a close connection with his family, with a member of the Colonna family, who had been the Marchesa, I think, of his hometown, or something like that, so... Rich people. Rich people protected him for a lot of his life because he was so talented. 
And, uh, and so he did live most of his life in palaces that belonged to his rich patrons, but for a short period of a couple of years, he lived and he rented this, an apartment in this building. Uh, a funny story about, uh, about his time here, and if, you, if you've seen you know, Caravaggio's paintings, you, you'll, you'll know that there's always a very sharp source of light, a very narrow, small source of, of light. And if you look at paintings, particularly if they have some kind of reflective surface in them, like if you look at the painting of Mary and Martha that has a mirror in it, or the painting of one of the Bacchuses that has a, um, a vase of, of flowers, and there's a glass vase, or the, the, um, the boy with a lizard or something, that I think, I think that's the one. The boy, the boy being bit by a lizard also has some kind of a glass vase, yeah. vase I think, or, or a wine, wine can decanter. But the point is you can see, if you look in these reflective images, you can see a very, very small pinpoint of light, like a little square of light. And what this was, was the hole that he had basically made in the ceiling of his studio. Because he used, <laughs> go on, you say? Uh, I was just gonna say, get your damage deposit back. I mean, to punch a hole in your own ceiling, there's not a landlord in the world that's going to be happy about that. No, his landlord was absolutely furious and actually kicked him out. That was that was the last straw. She already hated him. I mean, he, I can only imagine how he lived. He was probably very dirty and very disorganized. And he was, you know, he was a ruffian. He was not, um, you know, he was no Raphael. He was, he was a real ruffian. And he probably had prostitutes over. And he always had his models there because he always painted from life until the very end of his life when he, he didn't really have the opportunity to have models. He always painted from life. And if you look at some of his big scenes, like the execution of St. Matthew, or the, um, I should say, the, the martyrdom of St. Matthew, or the taking of Christ, or some of these paintings with seven, eight people, ten people in them, he would have them all there posing for hours. And I mean, he did use some techniques like the camera scura and he would outline their, their shadows. That was another thing that that hole in the ceiling was for. But he definitely had to have them there for, for a lot of the time. And so you can imagine the people coming in and out. He always used street people as his models, prostitutes, beggars, old people. It must have been quite a strange atmosphere here. Yeah, not the best crowd. And that's one of the things I, I love about him, actually, is that he's immortalized these people that otherwise would have been forgotten to history. Because he uses these, like you said, these street vagrant types and uh, a lot of prostitutes over and over again as various Christian imagery. Mary Magdalene in real life would be a prostitute that's very popular in Rome or something like that or and not, not even just Mary Magdalene like it was almost okay to paint Mary Magdalene as a prostitute right so but probably they would paint that he would paint the Virgin Mary as a prostitute and that was no longer okay well and it's not that he made her look like a prostitute but these were well-known people these were people who people would recognize as oh my gosh that's so-and-so that's the famous courtesan yeah from mm -hmm. the red light district or there's that street beggar that asked me for money every single day. They weren't unknown figures, but he put them in very lofty places. Yes, and that was another thing I loved about Matt Reese's book, A Name in Blood. He really recreates that atmosphere, and he talks about a lot of the models, particularly Lena, who was the love of his life, but also Filide, and I can't remember off the top of my head the names of, of a few other one, ones, but these women who you know had relationships with each other, who hated each other or were friends with each other and, or fought, and their pimps were all in it too. And it's fascinating. Another thing I love about Caravaggio's life is that almost all of the information that we have about his life 
with the exception of what you can glean from the actual paintings, is from police records. Because the man wrote no letters, he kept no journals, uh, the only thing we know about him is what other people said or what the police actually recorded when he ended up in jail. So how do you like that? <laughs> Should we walk on? One thing I asked Tiffany early on when, when we were first kind of sharing this equal love of Caravaggio with each other was uh, if she would have liked Caravaggio as a person. If he were around now, today, I mean, maybe you would appreciate his art, maybe not at this point, I don't know, but uh, would you have liked to hang out with him? Probably not. I mean, I'm, I think he probably would have been, you know, a pretty rough character. Scary, maybe. Maybe scary, maybe, you know, I know he had a pretty bad temper. There's a famous story about him throwing a plate of artichokes in someone's face. There's like even like a, a so-called so dish called like carciofi al car caravaggio. <laughs> and, you know, I think that, I don't know, I, I think that I would have rather hung out with uh, maybe Bernini if I had to choose an artist to hang out with. He was probably the easiest to deal with. I think that like great geniuses who, you know, are often disturbed, he was probably a little bit volatile. <laughs> A little bit. And he was wearing a sword, so <laughs> volatile and weaponized. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm going to shut this off while we walk a little more, just so I don't bump into any tourists or motorcycles. <laughs> and we'll, we'll check in with you in a minute. Where are we heading now? We're heading to the scene of a crime. Ooh, intriguing. Stay with us. So we are back, and we are standing on a street called Via della Palla Corda. Now, palla corda, which literally means ball cord, is, was a game that was kind of like tennis. It was similar to our modern-day tennis. And it was very popular in, in Caravaggio's time. And basically, the street where we're standing on is called Via della Palla Corda because this is where the palla corda courts were. Now, I don't know if they were indoors or outdoors. I haven't really ever figured out the actual logistics of this, but I know that they were here, and I know that they were specifically the ones that, where Caravaggio was playing a game on a fateful night in 1500. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the late 1500s. Or, or it could have been the early 1600s, actually, now that I'm thinking. Yes, um, that's probably true. It probably, it's probably was. was the early 1600s. It was right underneath or right on the site of a parking garage right now. I know, we're looking at a very ugly parking yeah, garage. It's very ugly, especially because they're doing some works. It's called the Roma Palla Corda parking garage. Right on this very spot, though, was a public Palla Corda court. And Caravaggio went there and he was playing with some friends. Now, this again, you have, we're going to have a more recent memory of the, the specifics of this story because you read the book more recently than maybe, I did. Maybe. But he was playing with a man named, sorry, taxi cab, um, with a man named Ranuccio Tomassoni, who was a pimp and was a little bit of a um, fop, I guess you could say. He thought he was pretty, pretty cool. He probably made a lot. He probably made a decent amount of money for like you know his class, and he uh, he and Caravaggio they were enemies. I don't remember where it began. But they were enemies, and they ended up getting into a fight, getting into a duel, and, uh, and Caravaggio killed the guy. But he may not have meant to. That's the big I question. Know. Peter Robb suggests that he didn't mean to. It's, you know, it's really impossible to know. It's a little bit of a crass story, because where does he hit him? He hits him in the penis. 
with his sword. Yeah. And from that injury, our poor victim bleeds to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, knowing what I do know about Caravaggio, I mean, I can see that it, he maybe didn't mean to kill him, but definitely meant to wound him. And I wound him in a very specific and kind of yeah. insulting way. Exactly. You know, I do know that, actually, I don't know, but I've read and I believe that it came to haunt him. His later works often showed him in a position of great, like, it made him look like he was tortured. He painted himself as the head of Goliath in David and Goliath, a dead head, because he had, it's also important to realize that he had a life sentence. Ever since this happened, he had a life sentence hanging over him. Now, when I say life sentence, he, he wasn't convicted because he never got caught. Basically, the, the thing was, if he, if anyone caught him alive or dead and brought him to the authorities, they would get a reward. So you can imagine how little his life was worth. Anybody who wanted to kill him suddenly could kill him with complete impunity. And so he was in desperate, desperate danger. And that's when he went on the run and he went to Naples and he went to Sicily and eventually to Malta. And, or I think vice versa, Malta then Sicily. Uh, but I think that idea of like feeling like someone might take his head is what made him put his face in the head of, of, of uh, Goliath. He also put uh, tortured, self-portraits of him in other situations, but that's probably the most famous one. So I think that he, he definitely came to, if not regret it, at least regret the, the, the punishment for it. Yeah, maybe it wasn't worth it. Uh, the only thing that's his saving grace in these years on the run, when you think about somebody who anybody could take his head, is that to people like the Pope and the people who are very wealthy, he was still very much a commodity. And so in that regard, there was some hope that if he stayed away long enough, they would bring him back and protect him, which is what he was hoping for. Yes, particularly because the new Pope, Pope Paul V, had a nephew named Scipione Borghese who was passionate about art. He was, I like to call him the world's most unscrupulous art collector because he would do any means to collect art. He would throw artists in jail. He would, you know, he would do whatever it took to get his hands on important works of art. And he threw Cavalier d'Arpino, who was, remember, Caravaggio's first master, well, first master in Rome, who had a lot of early Caravaggio works because Caravaggio was working for him at that time. He didn't throw him in jail, but he got him on some kind of tax evasion. He got his entire collection. And so Caravaggio knew that he was a favorite artist, one of the favorite artists of Scipione Borghese and his uncle, the Pope. And so, you know, he kind of thought, maybe this guy, just because he wants my work, will keep me alive, will find a way to keep me alive. And in the end, he did. In the end, he got a pardon, but he died on his way back to Rome. And let's talk about that somewhere else where these cars aren't coming into this parking garage. Okay, sounds good. Yes. If you're interested in learning more about Caravaggio and you're visiting Rome, be sure to contact Tiffany and take her up on her tour, Walking in the Footsteps of Caravaggio. You can find more details at her blog, thepinesofrome.blogspot.com. You can also find a link to that blog at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. So go wherever is easier. And while you're there, consider a donation to keep this podcast going. We rely on your donations to pay for the bills and keep us encouraged as we walk this road with you. Happy holidays!